Father, thank you so much for this morning and the opportunity we have to worship you, and we're grateful to be able to even do that through music and other ways as well. Thank you for those who lead us and are uh, helping us to greater understand you and to be growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Further bless us even now as we open your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin with a super important quotation this morning, so please give your attention to these very, very important words. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. End of quotation. Here's my question for you. Important words? Important words because Jesus spoke them. Good words? Very, very good words, right? Because Jesus spoke them. Good news? Not so much. It's not so much. They're good words because Jesus spoke them and they're true. We have to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. But they're not good news, they're not gospel words, because we are sons and daughters of Adam. Because we're sinful, and it's impossible for us to be perfect. So it's good, important, but not good words to us. Not good words at all. Furthermore, Jesus says, I'm quoting Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, but we know he's talking about obedience to God and his law based upon the context because in Matthew 5, 20, before that, he says this, For I tell you, unless your righteousness, your adherence to God's requirements, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Important words? Yes. Good words? Yes. Good news? No. It's terrible news. Sometimes people say that that Jesus is a kind of Moses, and I think that's right. He's a kind of Moses. But he's not a softer, gentler, nicer Moses. If anything, what we read in the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus, if anything, um, ratchets things up and puts a finer point on things. Why? So that we can see God's good, perfect requirement is not one that we can meet. So that we don't look to ourselves, but we look out of, outside of ourselves, we look to Christ. In fact, even in that very same chapter, in Matthew chapter 5, we have these words. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Here's the good news. I have not come to abolish them, but what? But to fulfill them. That's, that's good news. That's gospel news. So we have good, right, not good news, God's requirement, God's law, and then we have good news. Christ says, I came to fulfill them. Matthew chapter 3, verse 15, close to that context, wondering why Jesus would be doing what he's doing. He said, it is to fulfill all righteousness. I've come to do that. I've come to do on your behalf perfectly what you yourselves can never do. What I would like to do this morning is have us revisit this issue of God's requirement. We're going to label that law. Law requires things of us, and this is how Christians have talked for millennia, so we'll do it too. Law, what God requires. Gospel, 
what God provides. Gospel means good news. God provides through His Son, Jesus. And so we're going to talk about this law, gospel paradigm, okay? A way of thinking, a way of reading the Bible, a way of understanding things so that we don't blend the two and ruin both of them and end up with what we like to call gospel, not because we like it, we just label it that because it sounds so terrible. So God's requirement is good, but we can't keep it. God's provision is good and good news to us because Christ does the work. So this law gospel paradigm so that we would understand the Bible clearly. So what I'll do this morning is offer you an outline, and my outline would include eight points. We're going to have eight reasons to re rediscover the law gospel paradigm. Eight reasons to re-rediscover the law gospel paradigm. Why am I talking like that? Why am I talking in confusion? Why am I saying it like that? Talking it like that. Okay. It's in the Bible. We're going to see that. It was lost sight of, and it was rediscovered at the Protestant Reformation. And it seems like we've lost sight of it a bit, and so we're re-rediscovering it. Okay? We're not creating it. The Protestant reformers didn't create it. They recovered it or rediscovered it. We're re-rediscovering it. And it's so helpful. As a pastor, it's one of the most helpful things I can help people with. If we can understand that there is a law and it is good, righteous, and holy, like Paul says, and that we can't do it, and it drives us to Christ, we can see that there's good news in what God provides freely, graciously for us in Christ, and we can make sense of life, and we can make sense of the Bible. It's very freeing. I'm jumping ahead, but this is one of the things that um, motivated uh, the Protestant reformers to help disciple people with. This was, this was not meant for the upper crust, upper echelon, upper class, you know, super duper spiritual Christians. This was to help people like us read the Bible and not have the whole thing be a ball of confusion. And so I, I, I'm thankful for that. I reference Protestant reformers. Um, just a couple of good quotes from them. Martin Luther's maxim was, the law always accuses. The law always accuses. You can't. You're not good enough. You need to try harder. It's always in accusation mode. And likewise, Calvin said, the law only begets death. Because we're in Adam. It's good, but I'm never going to meet the requirement. Okay, let's go ahead and go to number one. First reason for us this morning. Oh, what happened to 2 Corinthians? I need more time for 2 Corinthians. So 2 Corinthians, we're setting it as a church together. So right now we're right to chapters 8 and 9. And so they kind of all go together. So it's a big bite to, to chew off or to, a big section to bite off and chew and sort out and make simple. So I'm working on it. Um, Lord willing, we'll start that next week if we get done with the 8 today. Stranger things have happened. Okay. But I'm super excited to talk about this. The last time we talked about this is when we had a conference two years ago. So it's been a while. Some of you have joined us. Some of you weren't there. So eight reasons for this law gospel paradigm distinction. Number one, it is vital to justification by faith alone. It is vital to justification by faith alone. We're going to look at Romans 2, Romans 3, and Romans 4. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to the New Testament, Romans 3, Romans 2, 3, and 4. It is vital to justification by faith alone. And that's a long point, I know. But in Galatians, we learn the Apostle Paul 
promoting and defending how to be right with God. And he's promoting and defending justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Justification means to be declared righteous. It means to be declared a law upholder. It means to be declared innocent, but even better than declared innocent, it's to be declared perfect. So remember when Jesus says you have to be perfect, it's another way of saying you have to be justified. Okay? You have to be perfect so God can declare you perfect. The reality is God will never declare us perfect apart from a substitute, Jesus. That's why it's justification by faith in Christ. Okay? But if we don't understand the law gospel paradigm and we blur the two, we'll get justification wrong every time. And in Galatians, you re- Galatians teaches us we really don't want to get it wrong. Because when we get it wrong, we're not part of a different denomination. We're actually part of a different religion. So we've got to get this right. And one reason why we don't get it right is we don't understand law. We don't understand gospel. So we want to make sure we get that right. Here we go. Romans chapter 2 verse 13 is the one I want to zone in on. And uh, if, you're, if you're around very often, you'll know I like to emphasize this verse, but it's a good litmus. Romans 2.13, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Is that good news? First of all, let me back up. Is that important? Yeah, that's important, right? Is it true? It's true. Is it good? Yeah, it's good. Is it good news? It's not, it's not good news. We, and there's an argument in Romans 1 to 3. In chapter 3, verse 10, there's none righteous. So we, we know what he's getting at. We know he's not saying, okay, do more, try harder. Pastor, be a pound of flesh, pastor. You just got to do more, try harder. And by the way, only God only justifies the doers of the law. Have a nice week. That's not gospel. That, that's law. That, that's saying, this is what God's requirement is. God does not declare people righteous who aren't obedient and therefore righteous. This is not good. This is terrible. This is bad news. It's true, but it's bad news to us as sinners. And so we've got to have it straight in our minds. So many times Christians read that verse because it's in the New Testament and they haven't been helped through Romans in context and they don't understand the law gospel paradigm and they read that and they're like, oh man, I better get busy. I probably should start working out. Because <laughs> i got to be healthy. i got to do a lot of stuff. Because God will never declare me obedient to His law unless I am. That's terrible. It's awful. I love Romans 2 because it's true, but I hate the way that it's misunderstood by so many. Let's not misunderstand it. Let's say, that's absolutely true. That's why I need someone to help me. And now let's go to Romans chapter 4, still in the context of his argument. In fact... You could, you could put a marker by 2.13 and 4.5. Or next to 2.13, you should probably write 3.10 and write 4.5. Put three, 2.13, 3.10, and 4.5 all together to, to, to interpret the Bible in context. 4.5 says, And to the one who does not work, but believes or trusts in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith, faith in Christ, is counted as righteousness. You see what's happening? God justifies the ungodly by faith in Christ, 4 or 5. But that would seemingly contradict chapter 2, verse 13. On the face of it, 
If you don't know anything about what's going on, 4.5 contradicts 2.13. It doesn't. It is kind of stormy. I don't want God to strike me dead with lightning. On the face of it, they contradict each other. Flow of argument, only those who are doers of God's law will be declared doers of God's law. Chapter 3, none of us are. Ah, provision in Christ, graciously, freely. Christ did all the right things. He fulfilled all righteousness. He, did, uh, he, he didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill, He did it. So now if you are trusting in Him, you're resting upon Him to be your substitute, now God declares you righteous freely according to His grace, and you're, even though you're ungodly. It is good news. <laughs> the good news is in chapter 4. It's amazing. It's amazing. But if we don't have that straight, we're going to lose sight of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And I just help you to understand how this law, Romans 2, God requires everybody to do it. Even Gentiles have the law written on their hearts. They know right from wrong, even though they don't do it. It's only going to condemn. It leads to death. Gospel, Christ, provision, chapter 3b, I would call it, into chapter 4. Christianity is the only religion on planet earth where it teaches, that teaches God declares righteous the unrighteous. It's because of a substitute. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. Let's move on to another reason, even though I really want to keep talking about the first one. Second reason for rediscovering or re-rediscovering a law gospel paradigm is because it keeps us Protestant. It keeps us Protestant. We'll do this one rather quickly. I don't have a text to assign to this other than Romans 2.13. I like using Romans 2.13 to see if your understanding of Romans is Protestant. The Roman Catholic view would be, that's right, Pat, you better work harder. And some of us Protestants have lost sight of the gospel law, law gospel paradigm and we sound like Roman Catholics. And our theology looks like Roman Catholic theology, but the reality is we're Protestants. And if we keep our heads on straight, spiritually speaking, God requires perfection. Nobody standing in that line except Jesus, our representative, comes to us freely because of his perfection. That's how we read the Bible. That's how we read Romans and the flow of Romans 1 to 5 even. Keeps us Protestant. John Calvin, who was not perfect, but he was a Protestant reformer who thought a lot about these things, he says this about Romans 2.13. And I, I would love to have this resonate in your mind. On Romans 2.13, that if righteousness be sought from the law, the law must be fulfilled. For the righteousness of the law consists in the perfection of works. They who pervert this passage for the purpose of building up justification by works deserve most fully to be laughed at even by children. And he goes on to say some other choice words. I just like the simplicity. Even children can understand this. God requires perfection. You're not going to be able to. None righteous, no, not one. That's why you have to look to God outside of yourself for perfection to be required. If we don't have that clear in our minds... We're functional Roman Catholics. 
In Roman Catholicism, we don't have God justifying the ungodly. We have God justifying the godly. Okay? And I'm not trying to insult anybody. Just the reality of it. So let's keep our Protestant heads on straight and think in terms of God requires perfection, law. Christ fulfills the law, gospel to us. Let's do the right thing out of gratitude, not because we're scared that we might be condemned. Fair enough? Ready to move on? I have to tell you a quick story about a Roman Catholic friend of mine. Uh, Let's call him Chris because that's his name. Um, (laughs) He wouldn't care. But... I've told the story before, but it's such a great story to tell. We're, they, he and his wife wanted to study the Bible together with us, and so we're studying the Bible, and I, eventually we're in Romans. We did John. We did First or Second Peter. Uh, we were doing Romans, and it was that aha moment where my friend Chris, I don't know if it was in chapter 5 or what, he goes, I get it. I totally get it. I'm like, okay, share, talk to us. We're at a restaurant or something. He goes, we suck. And Jesus is great. <laughs> and I'm like, you totally got it. <laughs> you got it totally figured out. And, and, and that's why I said, you know what, though? Based upon what you're telling me is you're, 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 you're a bad Catholic. Because he was affirming justification by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone, because even he could understand Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 4. And so let's just be clear-headed about this. We know what Jesus does. He does everything right for us. See, that's what gives us assurance. This is why in Romans chapter 5 and Romans chapter 8, we have great statements like, that we therefore now, there's no condemnation. By the way, that's the negative side of justification. There's no condemnation. Yeah, but I haven't done enough. That's right. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are trusting in Christ because He's already done everything. Isn't that good? It's wonderful. It's wonderful. Theodore Beza, who came after Calvin, so we're getting a good sampling here. Ignorance of this distinction between law and gospel is one of the principal sources of the abuses which corrupt and still corrupt Christianity. And I think he would be right. Even now, it still is a corrupting force. Number three, let's move on to number three this morning so we can understand a bit better. Number three, it is fair to all of Scripture. The gospel, the law gospel paradigm is fair to all of Scripture. Let me ask you a couple questions. Is there law in the Old Testament? It's an easy one, right? Hope you feel good about yourself. (laughs) Okay. There's law in the Old Testament. Is there gospel in the Old Testament? There's gospel in the Old Testament. So we're not talking about the four gospels. We're talking about good news. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now let's do it, do it another way. Is there gospel in the New Testament? Again, let's feel good about ourselves. There's gospel in the New There's good news about God's provision in the New Testament. Is there law in the New Testament? There's law in the New Testament. Yeah, there is. That's why, for example, you have in Leviticus 18, do this and you'll have eternal life. Law. It's true, it's good, it's law, it's not good news. And that is quoted by Jesus in Luke chapter 10 in the New Testament, and he says the exact same thing. Do this and you'll live. Eternal life is the question. 
So we have law in the old, God's perfect requirement, law in the new, from Jesus' own mouth, God's perfect requirement. So it's a mistake we make sometimes because we think old is all law, no gospel. New is all gospel, no law. I mean, no, no doubt there's, there's, there's more, more revealed and, and, and great, wonderful, gracious things fully revealed in the new. I wouldn't want to argue about that. But let's keep, keep this in mind. Romans 4 is the great example because Paul tries to convince people like you and people like me that we need Jesus. Okay? And he tries to convince Gentiles and Jewish people that the only way to ever be justified is by faith in Jesus. And what two big examples does he use from the Old Testament? Abraham in Romans chapter 4 and David in Romans chapter 4. He uses those individuals who are in the Old Testament as those who experience justification by grace alone, through faith alone, ultimately in Christ alone. So we're not, I'm, not, I'm not just making this stuff up. It's not just, oh, you came up with this paradigm and you're superimposing it on Scripture. No, but we have to remember we have both law and gospel in both. Yes, we have pro- progressive revelation. Yes, there's more that unfolds. True, true, true. In that sense, we could say the new is more gracious than the old because of the development. We understand more things. That's John chapter 1's kind of speech. Well, let's keep that in mind. It's fair to all of Scripture. In Romans chapter 3, none righteous, no, not one. That's a quote from Psalm 14. The standard is the same. The provision ultimately is Christ in either one. With me so far? Boy, just think if you could help people just get that. And Romans 4 helps you get just that. I mean, we could go to other places. Romans chapter, or excuse me, Hebrews chapter 9, that Old Testament saints actually had provision made by the New Testament coming Christ, and that's how they could be saved. We're not going to go there this morning. If I could help Christians get over the, 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 the confusion of Old Testament means only law, no gospel. Man, I could really help people. And if I could help people understand in the new, we still have God's perfect requirements. Love neighbor, love God, right? And God's perfect provision can really help people. This is why Christians have talked, spoken in these terms. If it's what God requires, you can use the label law, whether it's in the old or in the new. If it's what God provides, you can label it gospel because we don't earn it. It comes from Him. You with me so far? I wish I would have been taught this in seminary. I wish I would have been taught this as a young Christian. Just to, to think this clearly. It, 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 it's just a, it's a Protestant kind of reality doctrine. There's a law gospel paradigm. Hopefully we're learning it together now. I'd like to tell even pastors I talk to or, or people who are going to lead a Bible study and they'll say, all right, what commentary should I use? And I like to say, okay, here's, I, I love commentaries. I love books. I have thousands of books. I'm a bookie. Not really, but you get the idea. Um, here's a good commentary on that book of the Bible. But more and more I say, here's a good commentary, but don't, don't, don't turn your brain off. As I used, I, I, I'm going to compliment a professor. 
I used to have. He would say, it's amazing how much light the Bible sheds on commentaries. It's a good quote. Don't lose your ever-loving Protestant mind when you're reading the commentary. (laughs) If God requires this, don't water it down. It's law. Law is good. God provides this. That's under the gospel category. Awesome, great. And what God has separated, let no man ever put together. (laughs) Both are vital. Both are crucial. They're super important. Is this talking about what God requires of us? Or is this talking about what God provides for us? That's really important. It's fair to all of Scripture. Let's move on to number four. It, It disciples the church. It disciples the church. I don't have a text to offer you with this. I realize it makes some of us nervous because we want to have a text with every point. Um, I'll give you lots of text next week, I promise. Um, but I like to have this on here because some people think, man, I, I, I can't know all that stuff. It's too complicated. I've got to go to Bible college and I've got to go to seminary and I've got to get lots of letters behind my name, this law gospel paradigm. I just want to remind you or let you know maybe for the first time, this is one of the things that, that the Protestant reformers wanted to do for the lay people, the non-clerical class, okay? the non-collared people. Because think of it in these terms. For a long time now, people haven't had Bibles. Okay? And then it got so bad, partly you don't have a Bible because you don't have the resources, And then over time, maybe Bibles are available, but you can't have the Bible because that only is for the clerical class. That is only for the church in a language you yourself don't even know. And you you go attend a service and the guy up front or guys up front kind of do do religion for you. They're, They're called mediators. And now all of a sudden, earthquake shattering... Protestant Reformation, and now you have printing press by God's providence, and now you have the Bible in people's languages, like German, so that they can read it themselves. And now what? Now what we have, Martin Luther would say, is a whole world filled with popes. What do we do? Because there's, there's, there's... What, 600 and some commands in the Old Testament alone? There's so many commands in the Bible. There's commands all over the Old Testament. There's commands all over the New Testament. Even in the New Testament, it says, Jesus himself, do this and you'll have eternal life. Do this and live. Obey the law. Luke chapter 10. And you go, what in the world? How do we help our people see straight? How do we help our people read the whole Bible Christianly? One good way is to help them see that in the old there's law and gospel and in the new there's law and gospel and God's requirement is absolute, perfect adherence to His law. Love God, love neighbor perfectly. All your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. That's in the old, that's in the new. We're smoked. Teach people that. Help people to know that. We're under condemnation. Look outside of yourself to Christ who fulfilled the law. Rest in Him. Therefore, now there is no condemnation. This is a a discipleship tool for people who have Bibles who want to understand them themselves. And how about this? And can listen to the preacher and say, He's a gospeler. Send a different preacher. There's accountability. Because now people know things. It's wonderful. I love this quote from William Perkins. It's a classic. Writing in 1558 to 1602, at least that was when he was 
birthed and died. The basic principle in application, he's talking about interpreting the Bible, is to know whether the passage is a statement of law or a statement of gospel. It's the basic thing. It's the most basic thing you've got to deal with. Let me, let me try it out on you. Husbands, love your wives. Law or gospel? Well, if you have my wife, it's gospel. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I'm in trouble. Um, <laughs> it's a command. It's in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 5, and it's what God requires. So you're right, it's law. And, and I would tell that to an unbelieving man and say, you know what? God requires that you love your wife sacrificially as Christ loved the church. How you doing? He, he, he loved the church when we were sinful, not when we were good and perfect. How you doing with that, buddy? <laughs> I, I would use that to help somebody see and understand what God requires. Now, I would also use that for those of you husbands who are Christians to say it's good and right. And it's in the context of Ephesians, we have law in response to gospel. Oh, now we're making headway. Now we're moving it further. Now that I am a Christian, I'm in Christ, I've been justified, no condemnation, I still want to do what's right. In fact, now I want to do what's right like never before. And my my eternal destiny doesn't depend upon it. I'm going to do it out of, Protestants say, gratitude. Hmm. We're going to, I'm ahead of myself now, but um, we'll, we'll, we'll talk more. But just think in terms of simple, is this law or is this gospel? Let's go to number five. This paradigm guards against both legalism and license. Legalism and license. Legalism is when the worst kind of legalism, ultimate legalism like in Galatians, is where God justifies those who keep the law and there really are such people. Legalism is if you do enough things and maybe others do enough things for you, eventually, based upon what you do as a sinner, God will justify you. That's that's rank, ugly, bad legalism. But let me say this. Talk of law is not legalism. Lots of people I know, when they hear law, they think legalism. No, I don't think Jesus was a legalist. And he said, love God and love neighbor. Shorthand for the whole law, heart, soul, mind, and strength. He wasn't a legalist, but I I do want to share this insight with you. Oftentimes, people who don't talk about law at all ever, they forbid such talking, are some of the greatest legalists. See, it's one thing if it's written down in the Bible. Here's what you have to do. But if we say there's no law at all, you just have to do what I say. Some of the worst kinds of legalism is where they, they're, they're, we have no relationship with the law whatsoever. Oh, but it's my opinion. Okay, legalism, it's going to guard us from legalism. And it also guards us from license. License is when there's no law at all and you can do whatever you want to do. If you want the big, fancy, multi-syllable word for it, it's called antinomianism. Anti-law, anti-namas. 
What we don't want to be are legalists who teach justification by grace plus works. That's legalism. It's under the condemnation of Galatians 1, 9, and 10. We also don't want to be antinomians, licentious people who say you can do whatever you want to do, even as Christians. We don't want to be those kind of people either. That's why Romans 6, after hammering out five chapters with clarity, it's only in Christ. God justifies the ungodly. Paul anticipates the question in Romans chapter 6, and he says, shall we sin then? So that grace would abound? Should we we just be antinomian? Should we just do whatever we want to do? And he says, by no means. Perish the thought. And he goes on to talk about obedience. Oh, that's a law word. He goes on to use all kinds of law words. But in Romans 6, this is super important. In Romans 6, he says, we're no longer under law, we're under grace. And that has led to a lot of confusion. What does he mean? We're no longer under law, we're under grace. Five chapters, we're no longer under law for justification. But then he goes on to use legal terms like obey. So we're no longer under law, but we're under law. And I'm not playing word games. We're no longer under law for justification, so you can rest in Christ, no condemnation. And then he goes, he proceeds to tell you what you should do. Now it is our friend, it is our guide, Holy Spirit wrought, we want to do the right thing. Just don't, don't, don't get your obedience in Romans 1 to 5 or you have a different religion. Get obedience in Romans 6 after the fact as a result of the fruit of it's what we want to do. Now that we're no longer under law for justification. Guards against legalism and license. When Christians are behaving badly, we, we point to the corner because I don't want to point to any of you who behave badly. When Christians are behaving badly and they're Christians, I do want to tell them about Christ and what He's provided, Romans chapters 1 to 5, so they would be impressed with how great He is and the sacrifice He made, but I also then do want to call them to obey. You're supposed to do the right thing. You've been justified freely. Now, now, now live for the glory of God now that you can. But I'm going to do that through Romans 6 and not have Romans 6 be blurred and, and, and somehow melded into Romans 2. Otherwise, we have a different religion. Protestants ended up trying to sort all this out because law sometimes is to show us our need for Christ and to show us our sin. And sometimes it's meant to guide us. And what you end up doing is not reading the Bible out of context. And when you try to sort it all out, you see the law works differently in different people's lives at different times, depending on your status spiritually. So they would talk about a civil use of the law, a deterrent in the civil sphere. They would talk about a theological use of the law where it exposes sin and shows your need for Christ. They would talk about what we often call a third use of the law, which is the moral use, and it's meant to guide us. And in no way, shape, or form do I think they were superimposing that on Scripture. They were trying to figure out how in the world can we have Romans 6 work the way it does. No longer under law, but under grace. And now I'm going to tell you about how you should do the law. You have a different relationship with God through Christ. And so now when we talk to Christians, in theology speak, you don't need to know this, but we would call it the third use of the law. Maybe it helps you in these terms. Um, In Psalm 119, the psalmist, this is one I really like, he talks about the law as a light unto his path. 
I want the law in my life. I want to know what's right. I want to understand loving God, loving neighbor, doing the right thing, but it's not for my justification or my condemnation because Christ has already been condemned and he's already been justified, declared righteous at his resurrection and now his work is credited to me freely. Now I want to do the right thing. You can tell I'm passionate about this because if we, can, if we can make some traction here in getting this right, we can be good missionaries. We can be clear-headed Christians. We can be motivated to do the right thing for the right reason. We can be true to our history even, even though that's not number one. There's nuance. Let's move on to number six. A sixth reason that we should have this law gospel paradigm, and that's because it's been forgotten and it's been attacked. It's been forgotten and it's been attacked. We've had to take books out of our bookstore. Um, I, I, I'm for freedom of speech. I'm for um, people writing and saying whatever they want to say. I'm all for it. But we are also called to give watch over the sheep. And so we want to be a, a church that provides not... We don't have any perfect books in the bookstore except the Bibles. But there is such thing as the gift of teaching, and so we want to provide good resources that help you understand things and help us all. And, um, but we've had to take books out of our bookstore, books written about justification by faith alone that don't teach justification by faith alone, that teach the exact opposite of what I've been telling you about Romans chapter 2, which is thoroughly anti-Protestant. So, you know, that's not helpful. Maybe that person's a Christian who just doesn't understand, but this is a pretty big deal. So it's attacked, so I want us to understand so that we can be on guard and think straight. Super influential uh, writer, I'll just quote one who's not alive now so I don't have to be too controversial. Um, this, is a, this is a quote from, from Dan Fuller in his book on gospel and law. There can no longer be any antithesis any distinction in biblical theology between the law and the gospel. So there can't be any distinction between law and gospel. Some of you have heard of Dan Fuller, some of you haven't. If you've heard of him, perhaps it's because he was John Piper's mentor, who has the same view on Romans chapter 2, by the way. There can't be an antithesis. Well, that leads to a whole lot of trouble like justification by faith and works, justification by faithfulness, which isn't biblical, which doesn't jive with Romans and it doesn't jive with Galatians. The view is alive and well. Two of my favorite commentaries on Galatians and Romans teach this. They're not my favorite because they teach that. If we don't have a distinction between the law and the gospel, guaranteed fact, we're going to get the cross wrong, we're going to get justification wrong. We've got huge problems. This is true with N.T. Wright, another author who's alive, perhaps you've heard of. Um, the New Perspectives on Paul and others. This is an endorsement of Fuller's book. No book besides the Bible has had a greater influence on my life than Dan Fuller's The Unity of the Bible. God's Law stopped being at odds with the gospel. And I could read more. Now, I'm going to help you understand why anyone would come to that conclusion. And now I digress. His book was called The Unity of the Bible. You think that's a good title? I like that title. 
And you know what he didn't like? He didn't like people that said, in the old you're saved by works, in the new you're saved by grace. With him so far? Totally there. That's a good thing. Because lots of people are confused about that. But what he ended up doing is flattening everything with no nuance, with no sophistication, and now it's gospel. Because in the old, you're supposed to do things to be justified in principle, and there's grace. And in the new, you're supposed to do things to be justified in principle, Romans 2, and there's grace. So what we need to do is say justification is not by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. This is fuller later in his life. Justification is by faithfulness, including yours. He started off trying to do a good thing. What we want to do is stand with Protestants and other Christians who've gone before us. The Bible teaches you must be perfect to be justified. That's taught in the old, taught in the new, and guess how long that line is? There's only one. There's only one. He's our representative. And that's how justification can come to you freely, not by works. So this is a hot topic. It's alive and well even in our world. Number seven, it guards us from robbing Christ. It guards us from robbing Christ. Roman, or excuse me, Philippians chapter 2 is so deluxe when it comes to this. In Philippians chapter 2, you know the passage in verse 5, but notice who gets all of the glory and all of the honor because Christ does all of the work. I love Philippians 2, 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. So here's the great one who's becoming a servant and he's going to do it for us. How about next? Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He became one of us, right? He humbled himself by becoming obedient. Ah, the obedient one is him, not us. He becomes the servant so he can obey on our behalf, becoming obedient. How obedient? Obedient to the point of death even death on a cross, so ultimate obedience throughout the whole, punctuated climactically, even at the cross. He's the obedient one, not us. Verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted Him, not us, and bestowed on Him, not us, the name that is above every name. And he goes on to say lots of other great things about Christ. Think of it in those terms. If you are the obedient one, in part at least, then you're going to be exalted with Christ because of what you did. But if he's the obedient one, he and he alone exalted, oh yes, we're exalted with him because he represents us, but not because of our obedience. But as soon as we got to get our works in there, now all of a sudden it's a we did it religion. And again, that's a great litmus. If your, your understanding of the gospel and how it works has you one day standing before God saying, Knuckles, we did it! I don't even know what to say. It's not how we do it. It's not right. Finally, number eight. We want to have a law gospel paradigm because it isn't only for Lutherans and Presbyterians. Okay? That, this is the cheap shot that's made. Oh, that's Luther. Oh, becoming Lutheran now? Somebody even said that to me lately. Uh, somebody talked to somebody else and said, oh yeah, he thinks like a Lutheran. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a false statement historically. 
Luther definitely had the distinction. Calvin has this distinction, and he's no Lutheran. As clearly, if not more fully articulated than Luther does, I just gave you a tiny sampling. But now, a quote from everybody's favorite Baptist. (laughs) Charles Spurgeon. Same thing. Same thing. So it's it's not limited to some kind of group. Here's Spurgeon. The doctrine of the divine covenant, and he's talking about this issue. It's what the label he uses. Lies at the root of all true theology. It has been said that he who well understands the distinction between the covenant of works, and he means law, and the covenant of grace, he means gospel, is a master of divinity. I am persuaded that most of the mistakes which men make concerning the doctrines of Scripture are based upon fundamental errors with regard to the covenants of law and grace. Law and gospel. And to that I have to say, Amen. Amen. He he understood justification. That's why he's saying the same things that the Presbyterians and the Lutherans are saying. Re, re re-discovering the law-gospel paradigm. Is that text law or is that text gospel? Is it what God requires or is it what God provides? And what do we want to do? We want to see what God requires. Love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as, as yourself. Can't do it. So we look to Christ who came not to abolish the law, the requirement to to fulfill all righteousness and to rest in Him to do it for us. Now we're in a new position before God, a new status. Now I want to say, God, what would you have me do? My desire is to love you. My desire is to love neighbor. Not for my justification or out of fear of my condemnation, but because I've been justified freely according to His grace and now I want to do the right thing out of gratitude. Hope this is helpful. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this morning. Thank You for the clarity of the gospel message that is good, that it is good news to sinners like us. Thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ that He was obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Thank you that we can have confidence even as we go and as we sleep tonight and as we struggle through this life, confidence that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Help us to not be mean-spirited but kind, but men and women and boys and girls of conviction that Christ would be exalted and Christ would be honored and we would be thankful. In Jesus' name, amen.